Hello and welcome to the Cigar Cast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Crown Cigars and Nails here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Debbin, and I'm joined as I am every week by Mr. Shane Reeves. It is a nice day today, very relaxed. It's a little warm in here, but it's that time of year. Seems like nobody's got their air conditioning right yet. No, it's it's going to take a minute. Plus, we're sitting right here by these big old windows that the sun's been beating down on all day. I don't think that's helping matters at all. But we do have a returning guest today, our returning guest, Mr. Jay Drescher. Attorney, world traveler, author. I'm trying to think what all, what all, your specifications are a mile long. Historian laureate of the cigar shop yeah i mean you have so many so many abbreviations after your name if i say it it sounds like bragging when you say it it sounds really cool (laughs) (laughs) and all we're going to talk some more tonight i want to talk some more about glasby's fortune i know you've got a book signing coming up i want to talk about the process of that that's really interesting to me that that people how many people are you expecting and things like that but first thing we got to do is get our cigars lit Trey, what are you going to smoke tonight? Um, I really ventured out of my comfort zone a little bit tonight. This is the CAO La Traviata Maduro. And, you know, when we had Sean on last, he mentioned that it was probably their most popular um, cigar search and, and all that. It's widely regarded as one of the best cigars that they've ever made. And I've never had one. And... I've got to say, it looks beautiful. It's got a broadleaf wrapper. This is the Toro, so it's about a 56 by 6. It's a Nicaraguan binder and filler, or a mix of Dominican and Nicaraguan binder and filler. So it's right in my wheelhouse right now. And it's less than 7 bucks. It's a great smoke. I've had numerous ones of them, both before general-owned CO and after. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny how that kind of rose and fall, because when General first took over CAO, it's like they were burning through some back stock and the quality went down. Now they've brought the quality back up to standards probably exceeding what CAO originally was. Well, see, I had that problem with CAO back in the day in that I tended to stay away from their budget side of things. The CAO's you know, upper echelon of their line was always very, very good, but some of their, some of their budget stuff I, I was never a big fan of. But since General has taken them over, I, I think the Pallone is a perfect example of a budget-friendly cigar that is just out of this world good. So, you know, I, after the, the recommendation from, from Sean a few months ago talking to him, I, I saw it in the humidor, I thought, yeah, let's do something a little different tonight. Well, I'm smoking something a little different tonight. I realized this week that I only smoked Don Pedro's cigars when he was on the show. And I really smoke them a lot at home and really enjoy them. So I thought I should smoke it on a show where Pedro isn't a guest. Just so if anyone was wondering, I really do enjoy his cigars. So you can give an honest review this time? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I love these cigars. Pedro is such a small company. And small cigar company produces 3 million cigars a year. And that's a small one. I'm looking at Jay when I'm telling him this so that he kind of gets an idea because Jay's not as into the cigar industry as we are. But he always brings a great cigar when he comes. This is his 10th anniversary. Um, the red label, it has the Ecuadorian wrapper. It's just one of my favorite smokes. I just really enjoy this cigar. So I'm planning to have that tonight. And then Jay, what are you having tonight? Well, it's the cigar you gave me, so you might want to tell your audience what it is. So what I've given you tonight is an Aganorsa Farms Guardian of the Farm. 
Um, I've smoked that show on the air, or smoked that cigar on the air. <laughs> smoked that show on there. Smoked that cigar on there. Trey smoked that cigar. It's Nicaraguan wrapper. Its binder is Nicaraguan Corojo fillers, Nicaraguan Corojo 99 and Criollo 98. Well, I would have sworn this was an Ecuadorian wrapper because I lit it up before we started. <laughs> well, it is Nicaraguan, it is, but it's Jalapa, and Jalapa is pretty close to Ecuador. Nicaragua and well, Ecuador. You, you make a good point. <laughs> so, <laughs> they are pretty close together. But as you're smoking that cigar, I do want to talk for a minute. I read something really interesting today about Eduardo Fernandez. Have you ever heard the story of Eduardo Fernandez? I have not. He owned Casa Fernandez, which has now become an Aganorsa Farms. And I've been on such a Casa Fernandez quick kick lately. You really have. And all, as is evident by the fact that I even gave Jay one tonight. Did you know that he owned a pizza chain in Spain is how he started Casa Fernandez? <laughs> I don't know how I would have known that. But I can see why it would have been something that I did know. What are you, a cigar fan or not? Yeah, apparently not. <laughs> how can you not know that? I must be a minx. And I'll, so... Eduardo, he lived in New York, and he really loved the pizza there, and he realized there was no pizza chains in Spain. So he literally sold everything, burned the boats once he got over there, and committed it all in 1987 to introduce the concept of delivery chain pizza in Spain. Huh. And by 1999, shares of Tela Pizza were up 990% from their future for initial offering. So does the pizza chain in Spain deliver mostly on the plane? Wow. <laughs> Jay, it's up to you. <laughs> it proves that uh, when it comes to investing, hindsight is, uh, is the devil. Well, it's funny because they, they went public in 1996 and were the first restaurant company on the Madrid Stock Exchange. That's pretty neat. And he got finished with all that and went straight into making cigars in the Casa Fernandez line, which has now become Aganorsa. So you're smoking a cigar of a lot of history, Jay. I thought that that considering your love of history, that would be appropriate. I thought there was a little hint of oregano and pepperoni in this cigar. <laughs> <laughs> we had it delivered to 30 minutes. or If you can't smoke it in 30 minutes or less, it's free. Yeah, I should have got some pizza bread with this. Okay, so update us on Glasby's Fortune. How's the sales going? How's the book going? Tell me all about it. You know, it's, uh, it's funny how often people ask me, you know, how many, and it's a natural question, how many books have you sold? So, the first thing I tell them is that I have learned since writing a book that somewhere around a thousand self-published books come out every day. Holy cow. So it's hard to sell a book once you've written it. doesn't matter how good it is. If you're famous, you'll sell a book. If you're a really good writer, you might sell a book. But if you just have one book to sell, there's a lot of other options out there for the reading public. There's probably something like 11 or 12 million books that you can purchase on Amazon, whether it's an e-book or a print book. But the self-publishing industry has become an industry in, in, in and of itself. It's, it's, it would be wrong to say that it's easy. I mean, you do have to write a book. But you don't have to get permission. You don't have to get an agent. You don't have to get a publisher. You can just upload it, and you can sell it for 99 cents, 
You can sell it for $17.99. You can do whatever you want. Marketing the book is work. It's just like selling a product. It is a product. If you're uh, selling cigars, selling pizzas, you know, people smoke cigars, people eat pizza, people read books, but they have so many choices that if you have a story to go with your, if you, with your cigars, if you have a story to go with your product, if you, if you get a little momentum. Um, I've been fortunate that I've been able to break even finally and recoup the cost of self-publishing, the cost of getting a cover design, the cost of getting an editor to make sure that you eliminate as many typos as you can, that your story makes sense, and that's very important. Uh, if nothing else, just for pride of authorship. Then it has to be formatted so that it can be downloaded by the reading public as an e-book. It has to be formatted so that it can be published. I can buy as many of these books as I want, and they print them on demand, and it's amazing how fast it is. And it, it, looks, it looks like a professionally made book. So I've sold several hundred copies to friends and relatives, and I've had a book signing before. Uh, I've sold an equal number online. What really, really, really matters is that if somebody likes the book enough to take a moment to post a review, I've been really fortunate. Uh, I've probably exceeded the ratio of readers to reviewers, and I've gotten 61 reviews on Amazon. They're all very positive, and that's very rewarding and gratifying. And that's what helps drive book sales in the future. The other thing that if you want to make any money or even... Obviously, some people make a great living as, as writers. You have to keep producing. A lot of books are sold in a trilogy or in a series, whether it's fantasy, whether it's fiction, whether whatever it is, you have a character and you lead them through. I could give you a lot of examples. So I'm trying to write a second book because I think it will help sell book number two and it will help sell book number one because it's kind of a sequel. So that's what I'm working on now, but... Um, my hometown is Quincy, Illinois, and there's a high school classmate of mine that has a gift shop, and we're going to have a little book signing this Saturday, May 26th. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, my mom will be there. She's 89 years old. Oh, fantastic. Um, of course, I'll make my wife and son go, so there will at least be three or four people there. <laughs> but I hope, to, I hope to see some of my friends and sell some of my books and just reconnect with some of the people I haven't seen for a while, so I'm looking forward to it. That's very cool. So... I feel like you're one of the few people I can ask this question to and get a completely honest answer. That's always scary when he leads in a question like that. <laughs> I've buckled my seatbelt, hit me. You wrote a book. You've been through the work. You've been through all of the, the trials and the tribulations. Would you rather sell one million of those books and know that everybody that bought it was going to read it or sell five million and know that two thirds of the people were never going to read it. Uh, the honest answer is, I'd rather sell five million books. <laughs> See, that, that's good. That's what I wanted. I wanted the honest answer. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I've off, I've been a lawyer for 36 years. I've often said that the reason why so many attorneys become cynics is because they're just in it for the money. Which is not to say that when you, when you do legal work for people, you don't want to be paid. But I, my, my primary aim as an attorney is to help people through a difficult time. I was a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. I had people that were looking at prison. I was a prosecutor. 
Then I worked for a big law firm. That's all about money. Then I started my own firm. Now I'm a sole practitioner. I represent most, most of my cases are involving family law, child support, things of that nature. I still enjoy the work that I do because my priority is not to make a fortune. It's to help people. It's to give them advice. It's to educate them. It's to help them weather this process. It's always longer and more expensive than they think. There's no winners. There's just survivors. And I've often said, too, that if you just set out to write a book to make money, you're probably not going to do it. You have to love the process of coming up with an idea, creating characters, making a story that you think that people might enjoy. If you do that, you might get lucky. And if people read it and like it and post reviews, then people might buy it and it might enable me to write another one. So a friend of mine who is a lawyer who's written a book or two, and he mentioned a lawyer in East Tennessee that's written uh, some books and I'd never heard of it. Well, now that I visit Amazon, you know, every day to see if somebody's bought my book, I've seen this author's name and I can't remember. It's not that I'm not trying to give him a plug, but the thing that matters is, I think this guy got in some kind of trouble, ethical trouble or maybe even legal trouble, and he started writing these John Grisham type books, thrillers and courtroom dramas, and the guy sold two million books. So he's obviously a very talented writer because you can't, you can't just spit out books and sell two million books. So it can be done. And I, I don't know anything about the gentleman or what got him started other than maybe it was by necessity. But we live in Nashville, and I analogize it often to musicians and songwriters. There's a lot of people that park cars and wait tables that are very, very talented musicians. And to get a song recorded by a mainstream artist that gets on the radio, you know, it's kind of like catching lightning in a bottle. But at, at its base, they have to love their craft. They have to love songwriting. It's kind of like a calling. They could write, a, they could write 15 songs that nobody cares about, but what they want to do is become successful. So there's always a monetary or a mercenary aspect to it. I like art too, and I know that Van Gogh painted 486 paintings. He sold one in his lifetime. We all know that none of us in this cigar shop can afford to buy, buy a Van Gogh, but obviously the man was driven to paint. I don't know. My yard sale game is strong. <laughs> I mean, it's real strong. <laughs> you get one for a nickel? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd give them five bucks. I mean, come on. <laughs> when people say that writing a book is work, I say that for me it wasn't. It was a great escape. It was a great challenge. It was a great exercise. It was, uh, I learned a lot about myself. I took a lot of things I know about writing and tried to put them to work just to see if I could make that tapestry. So that, that process is uh, it's kind of hard to describe, even for a writer. But I've heard it from other authors, too. Um, John Grisham famously wrote A Time to Kill first, and nobody would buy it. Then he got mad, and he said, I'm going to write a, a book that's going to be commercially su successful. And he was, he was capable of doing that. And the firm was the big blockbuster that put him on the map then everybody wanted a piece of John Grisham. So even though The Firm came out first, A Time to Kill was written first. And that, was, uh, that, that gives you an idea of 
how competitive it is in the publishing industry. There's very few James Pattersons, Michael Conleys, who I've met, John Grisham, who I have not. And I've read a lot of his books, but I haven't read them all because they do tend to follow the same format. He's written some nonfiction books, books that are not legal thrillers, but he's an industry. He's like Garth Brooks is to music. He becomes an industry. But imagine being a songwriter and pitching a song to Garth Brooks' manager or agent and Garth Brooks recording your song. Now suddenly you're on the map. So yeah, that would be great. If I could write a bestseller, if I could have, a, if I could have my book made into a film, yeah, hallelujah, amen, free cigars and free beer for everybody for a week. Is that my aim? That's not my goal. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to aim at a target I can hit, and I just enjoy the process. But I say, trying to market a book in today's world, it is work. And I know that a lot of authors who are very successful, they don't like book tours, they don't like book signings. It's just part of the process. The writer's seminars that I've attended, about half of it is about writing, characters, plot, what you're writing about. The other half is about agents, copyrights, publishing rights, getting an agent, getting a publisher. So it's like anything else. If, um, if you were Van Gogh back in the day and you had a really good agent, you might have been able to sell a couple more paintings, but he painted because he loved to paint, because he was driven to paint. And it's, one of the, there's, it's one of the many reasons why his art is in such great demand, because he was so unique. Well, and isn't that the famous story that um, Nikola Tesla just didn't have a good press agent? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the joke, yeah. But, <clears throat> I mean, there's, I mean, the history is, is, is full of stories like that, of people that, that were the, the bridesmaid, so to speak, you know, always on the outside looking in. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you talk about that and you talk about movies being made of the books. One of my favorite books ever is getting made into a movie. The movie releases later this year. I can't wait. It's called Meg. It's about a giant shark. Imagine me like in a giant shark movie. <laughs> but it's about a giant shark, a megalodon. And that book was published in 1997, and it is now 2018, and the movie is coming out. What I find fascinating as a, as a part of that is I've got a family member who's an author and makes his living as an author. And how even though, I mean, certainly getting, getting it made into a movie is a huge step in selling more books and, and getting more opportunities to write more books. But even just the act of having the, the film right sold is such a huge... It, it's like having the rights to a song bought, even if it was never recorded to an album, just because the people in the industry know that if this person's taking a chance and putting the money down on it, then it's, if someone else sees it, no one likes to be the first. So, but, if, but if someone sees that someone else is taking this chance on this person, it really opens up opportunities. Well, um, I have been told more than once by people either in or on the edge of the film industry Hollywood makes about 400 movies a year. So when you're talking about a song, you're talking about a piece of art, you're talking about a book, screenplay, play. Um, by the way, the, as a former Marine judge advocate, I'm asked all the time, have you ever seen A Few Good Men? Yeah, I've seen it. Uh, it started out as a play. It started out on Broadway as a play and then was made into a, a very iconic film, in part because of Jack Nicholson's performance. But the odds of getting a book 
made into a film are really, really thin or slim or none. It's a, when you think about all these things, it's really a commodity. Hollywood is in the entertainment business. When people go to a film, they want to escape reality. When they read a book, they want to escape reality. They want to live in a different time. They want to be somebody else. They want to identify with a character that they can relate to. And, and that's really what you're selling. And that's the common theme of all this. If you take away the art, take away the paintings, with plays, books, movies, television shows, it's storytelling. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a protagonist, it has an antagonist, and it has conflict. And there really is kind of a formula to it. And there's very few films that break that formula. You talk about books made into film. Not too long ago, The Alienist was made into a TV miniseries. That was a very big-selling book by Caleb Carr, and it was written quite a few years ago. I read the book. And it takes the concept of behavioral silent behavioral science and profiling back to the turn of the century in New York City and makes the protagonist kind of a behavioral scientist. I read the book, I watched the, the miniseries, but it took a long time for it to make the screen. And of course, anytime you take a book and make it into a movie, Trey and I have talked about this a lot, it's a huge challenge because essentially you have 90 minutes or two hours at most to take a 300 or 400 page novel and put it into it. So a miniseries is kind of a different animal, but just making a feature film, tri trivia question for you Shark fans. Who wrote the book Jaws? Peter Benchley. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really interesting, too, when you talk about that aspect, because the, the general rule of thumb in screenplay writing is that a page of a screenplay equals a minute of screen time. So you take a 400, 500-page novel, and you have to distill it down to basically its core 120 pages. It's, so it's got to be very challenging. It's got to be very challenging. You're telling me a picture's not worth a thousand words? I've been told this all my life. Well, a moving picture is what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Well, I was just, I was just curious. I, everybody always tells me a picture's worth a thousand words. I assumed that was how you turned a book into a movie. <laughs> and all, but... So we got to step away, but I asked you a moral question. So I have a moral quandary involving the cigar industry that I've prepped neither of you for, nor shall I, that I want to hit you with after the break. So we're going to step away for the break, and then when we come back, Trey can yell at me. Shane here with your cigar under $8. This week, I want to talk about something we don't talk about very often, the Asylum Ogre. The Asylum Ogre has a barber pole candela wrapper over what is usually a pretty large ring-gauge cigar. The smallest one is a Robusto, and it's a 5x50, and this is a pretty good cigar. I really enjoy this. And it's one that I've always stayed away from for a couple of reasons. Most of the time, when you see it in a shop, you don't see the smaller ring gauges, because they do make some pretty sizable cigars, um, but also because of that Candela. But I understand you've smoked quite a few of these, right? I have. I've bought, actually bought um, 10 of them at a show one time. They were 8x80s. And really enjoyed them. It's like smoking a stick of stove wood, but it was a very I would imagine so. You know, if you got three hours to kill and you want a cigar that'll be with you the whole time, the Ogre. 
and all. But the one I'm talking about tonight is the... And because there's such a gimmick cigar in the big ring gauge, people miss how good a cigar it is. I'm talking tonight about the Robusto 5x50, about $6.50 a cigar, so really reasonably priced. Not, not bad at all. Just a great smoke, real um, creamy is really the best word I had to describe it. Has a lot of flavor. It's a Nicaraguan cigar. Um, they're ranking it here a very full. They're ranking it the highest full on there, but I think the Candela tames it down a little more than that. So some next time you're in the humidor and you see that Barber Pole Candela and it doesn't have an Alec Bradley label on it, try the Asylum 13 Ogre. I got two good ones coming up. And welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane Reeves. Sitting beside Trey Deadman, who this week I have nothing to say in the return. You know, I spent the entire drive down here trying to figure out what I was going to say to you uh, on the open of the show, and I couldn't come up with anything either. We must be having a dry day for taking shots at each other. I think it's because we have a gentleman on the air with us, and we're trying to be on our best behavior. That must be what it is. We think this Jay Drescher has joined us once again on the Cigar Cast. And, okay. This is... (laughs) So here's the question. First question of the night. Half-smoked Winston Churchill cigar sold at auction last week. And uh, first, what was your first thought when you seen that, Jay? Well, they're not making them anymore. I know that. (laughs) Um, I became a big, big fan of Winston Churchill when I was stationed in London from 88 to 90. And... um, one of the great experiences I had while I was there was the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, and it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. In fact, there was a huge flyover and parade that led down Whitehall to the gates of Buckingham Palace, and I was standing on the sidewalk watching the parade go by. And of course, back then you had 70, 75, 65-year-old veterans. They would wear their blue blazer. Some would have a beret. They'd have all their medals. Some were walking with canes. Some were walking unassisted. But the most unforgettable part was at the very end when they had two Spitfires and a hurricane flyover. Now, all the other planes that flew over, the modern planes, the Lancaster bomber, they all took their turn, and they were very, they were pretty high up. They were at a pretty high altitude. But the the Spitfires and the Hurricanes, they, they said, were being flown by men who had flown them in the war. Oh, wow. And they came, they came rolling down about 300 feet. You could feel them as they came. You could feel them as they passed. And I can still feel that feeling now. It makes my chicken skin go up because the roar of that 12-cylinder Merlin engine. Is there anything better than that sound? No. There, there's, there's certain things that resonate, and I mean that on purpose. And when, when those planes flew over, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was watching a piece of history go by. But you could almost smell the fuel coming out of the engine. And there, the, the design of those planes, I can't tell a Spitfire from a Hurricane. I mean, they're, they're very elegantly designed. And those planes and the men that flew them is what kept Britain from being invaded by the Germans in 1940. And there, 
as a Marine, you know, you've heard the slogan, the few, the proud, the Marines, that was part of Madison Avenue's recruiting posters. But the original few was from one of Winston, Winston Churchill's speeches when he talked about the pilots. There was only about a thousand pilots. They could make planes faster than they could make pilots. One of the advantages that the British had was they were fighting, they were the home team. So when the German planes came over England and were bombing all the different cities, Liverpool, Birmingham, London, during the Blitz, if a German plane was shot down and the pilot lived, he was a POW. If a British plane was shot down and the pilot lived, he just got in another plane and went back up. (laughs) One of my favorite stories from that time was that there was a plane that landed on one of the airstrips after a dogfight or had gone up on patrol. And the plane came in kind of at an angle and then went off the runway and kind of came to a dead stop. And all the, all the crewmen ran out to the plane thinking that the pilot had been shot up. He'd fallen asleep. It was his fifth mission that day. He was exhausted. He just fell asleep. He wasn't wounded. He was just exhausted. So this handful of pilots, and they were South Africans, Canadians. There was a couple of Americans. They were Czechs and Poles. They were from all over. Uh, they stopped the Luftwaffe from gaining air superiority, which is a key to a, to a seaborne invasion. So there's been lots of Hitlers before. Napoleon wanted to invade England, and Lord Nelson brought the uh, French and Spanish Navy to its knees at the Battle of Trafalgar, so that was off the, off the charts. The same thing happened with the Germans. If they couldn't defeat the British Air Force, they couldn't risk crossing that 22 miles of water that's protected England for centuries from invasion. So I got two questions. One, are there Winston Churchill impersonators? I mean, you were there. I'd think if they were anyway, it'd be like finding an Elvis impersonator in Vegas. Are there Winston Churchill impersonators walking around there? I like to think that the British are better than that. Well, there's a funny, there's a funny story about that. And, and one of the, one of the most uh, well-known... Winston- Hang on a second. I have to pause this. Everybody noticed that as soon as we started talking about Winston Churchill, Elkins walked into the shop. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> expecting him to have that half-smoked Churchill cigar with him, actually. There's a, there's a well-known customer here that's a big Churchill fan, and, and we, he and I have known each other for years. So it wasn't too long ago that we were talking about Churchill's recorded speeches. And a friend of mine who's very well-read, and he's a Korean War vet, he's 86 years old, and he said... You know, some of those speeches on the radio that were recorded and are very famous were by an actor. And Mr. Elkins said, oh, that can't be right. That can't be right. Because he totally idolizes Churchill. So it got a little contentious, but not too much. And I checked on it. And my, my friend, the, the Marine veteran, was right. Churchill was so busy. Now, he gave a lot of live speeches, but many of his speeches that are recorded for posterity were by an actor who was imitating Churchill on the radio because Churchill didn't have the time to deliver the speech on the radio. So there, there's one example of a Churchill impersonator. <laughs> well, not, just... not to mention the great performance by Gary Oldman in The Darkest Hour. That's true. So my second question is, do either one of you know how much a half-smoked Winston Churchill cigar sold for? Where was the auction? The auction was held... U- U.S. or Europe, I guess. So, uh, British, according to the Boston-based RR Auction House. So it was sold over here. Okay. 
Captain William Allen Turner saved the Cuban cigar, which features a red and gold La Corona label alongside the wartime leader's full name. And they had the, you know, all of the stuff to go with it. They have a signed picture showing Churchill holding the cigar. I can't imagine how hard it was to get one of him holding a cigar. Yeah. But what do you think it sold for? What do you think Elkins paid for a half-smoked Winston Churchill? Well, I know the answer because I think you told me, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll bow out. Trey, what, would you, what do you think? Uh, something ridiculous like twenty grand. Close. $12,000. Okay. 12, I, knew, I knew I was shooting high, or at least I was hoping I was. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Wasn't there a box of Cuban cigars that JFK had before, obviously before he was assassinated in 63, that was uh, either sold or valued? Am, 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 I, am I touching any uh, memory banks on either one of you? I don't recall. I haven't seen the story. I'd have to Google it. You're talking about from about 10 or 12 years ago this came up, right? Wasn't it a while ago? I don't know where I know this from, but it, it, was, a, it was an unopened box, and apparently he was a cigar smoker. Oh, very much so. And he liked Cuban cigars, which is kind of ironic. Well, everyone did at that point. Well, that given, was the majority of it, yeah. Given, given all the right, friction with Cuba. Um, but, you know, things like... Uh, if you had Joan Crawford or Marilyn Monroe, a napkin with their lipstick, you know, it's something that back then you would have thrown in the trash, but then it becomes, you know, like Elvis's, you know, dirty sock. It's worth $500 to somebody. But Churchill is revered for multiple reasons, and anything Churchillian, I don't care what it would, speaking of painting, he's a really good artist. He was a really good painter. In fact, Elkins once... That's why Hitler was so angry. Yeah, he was a better painter than he yeah, was. Exactly. That's actually... I'm, I'm positive that's exactly why they had uh, such a rivalry. But <laughs> Churchill was a very good amateur painter, and it wasn't long ago there was a big full-page ad or something in USA Today. So kind of semi-pretending to be calling for an unnamed client, I actually called the uh, antique shop in New Orleans on behalf of Mr. Elkins wondering what they were asking for this painting and it was many times more than I thought and it's not because of the artistic value but it's because number one uh, there are very few that come on the market so they're rare and the other thing is if you own a Churchill painting I mean that's something that this man made with his hands I want to say the asking price was something uh, north of two million dollars wow I said thank you very much I'll be in touch (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll have and they're agent. still and they're still waiting patiently by the phone for that call. You know, somebody probably bought it. Oh, I'm sure. That's why they ran a full page page ad in USA Today. I was thinking it would be a quarter of a million dollars or something like that. Yeah, just off the top of my head. But it's every everything like that is supply and demand. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there was actually a bidding war on that, and it probably went for more. Actually, it reminds me. I think the same shop. Had one of the Enigma machines for sale. How they get oh, this stuff, wow. I don't know. Can you imagine? That would be ha- cool. Having one, owning one. How would you get one? There so aren't explain, that many. Explain what an Enigma machine is. You know, the uh, there's a book called A Man Called Intrepid about the story of how the British and the Americans were collaborating, but it was mostly the British that got an Enigma machine, which was uh, the device used to transmit and receive coded messages from the Germans. And they, they had to have the machine to break the code, which they did. And it, it 
paid huge dividends during the war because they could read the Germans' messages, but the code changed every day. But having the machine was uh, invaluable. The movie with Benedict Cumberbatch was the more recent one about breaking the code and about the team that worked on it, the mathematicians. Think about this all before computers. The imitation game. Yes, thank you. It took me a second to get there, but... Yeah, he, he basically built a supercomputer to break the code. Stuff like that just amazes me. So, more cigar news. I need to know... So, I asked you an ethical question earlier, which you responded to very honestly, about people reading your book versus buying your book. J.C. Newman has relaunched their Save the Cigar City campaign. So, J.C. Newman Cigar Company has a factory in Ybor City. Near Tampa. Near Tampa. And they've launched a campaign against the FDA regulations that'll shut, basically shut this factory down. But when you read a little deeper, you find out they only make machine-made cigars in this factory. All of their handmade cigars are made in Nicaragua. So they're protecting the history and the legacy more so than the actual industry? Is that what you're getting at? I guess it kind of rubs me raw. I think, I don't know, I, if you're going to save the rollers in the Cigar City, shouldn't you be rolling something in there? Should, why, is that me being oversensitive? And Well, I think, it, I think it shows a little prejudice against the machine-made cigars. I'm not saying you personally, but I'm saying just in general. You know, there's been all this talk about the premium cigar exemption. And there was a, a line drawn in the sand fairly quickly making the distinction between hand-rolled and machine-rolled. And the, the problem with that, I think, is there are some very good machine-made cigars. Uh, Villiger makes a couple of them that I really enjoy. And they're, they're what I would consider a cigar. The problem is when you talk about machine-made, you start lumping them into the same group as Swishers and black and milds and things like that. So I, I can understand where the prejudice against machine-made cigars comes from. But in, in this case, I think it's just we've created this line in the sand as to what makes a premium cigar. And even though they've been around for generations and generations, and they are at the heart of Cigar City right there where a lot of the American history of cigars comes from, because they're currently not making anything hand-rolled, they kind of get swept under the rug a little bit. I don't know that that's... I mean, I get where you're coming from, but, uh, but I think you have to look at, at the impact they've had over the long span of, of existence. Should that matter, Jay, whether well, they're I not have, they're have, actually making it? Since, since both of you gentlemen are cigar aficionados, and this, this is, I guess, payback, I'm going to ask you an ethical question, kind of. In a blind taste test, can you tell the difference between a hand-rolled cigar and a machine-rolled cigar? A hundred times out of 100. Can you? I guarantee you, a hundred times out of a hundred, when it hits my hand, I can tell you the difference. By the feel, by the texture, by the way it draws? Long filler tobacco is the difference. Hand-rolled cigars are made using long filler tobacco, and machine-maids are chopped. You really don't find long filler tobacco in machine-made cigars. And the difference in the flavor and the burn, I, I'm pretty sure, I th- I, that may sound like I'm bragging, but I'm pretty sure 100 out of 100, I could guess it. What about you, what Trey? What about you, Trey? I think I would be, pro- I, I wouldn't go so far as to say 100 out of 100, because the on flavor alone, but he's right, that you put it in my hand and then it all goes out the window, because the feel is very different. 
and it, it, the texture is so much more consistent in your hand that that's more the giveaway because there are some machine-made cigars out there that flavor-wise are, you know, toe-to-toe with, with premium cigars with long fill hand-rolled. So, uh, so should there be a, uh, any, any little twins of, twinge of chauvinism when it comes to trying, trying to save or uh, maintain a cigar manufacturer if some of their cigars are hand-rolled and some are machine-made? As, as, a, as a very, very casual cigar smoker, I don't really see the distinction. I wouldn't prejudice someone because they make a combination versus one that's exclusively hand-rolled. I, I, would, I wouldn't see that as a difference. Well, one of the um, language in the proposed premium cigar exemption is that it does have to be a hand-rolled cigar. The premium cigar exemption will not include machine-made cigars. Well, we talk a lot in our country about trying to maintain, you know, small businesses, Mm -hmm. the small business owners. So you could have a small business owner that makes nothing but machine-made cigars, which is, you know, a, a company that you might want to keep because it employs 18 full-time employees and sells X number of cigars per year. Or you could have a cigar company that has six people that make hand-rolled cigars and sells half the same number, and I wouldn't see that there's any difference. If you're trying to maintain and keep small businesses, I would say that they're on equal footing, just from where I'm sitting. Well, it was an interesting thought because as I was digging deeper into that, I kind of, I'm in favor of, letting the market determine who stays in business and who doesn't. I don't think the government should play any role in that. Mm -hmm. But the FDA regulations are starting to play a role into that. And that's one of the things that will shut down this J.C. Newman factory if the FDA regulations are approved with or without the premium cigar exemption. What is the the latest on whether or not some other governmental agency is going to come in and either uh, essentially rescind or, or roll back We've talked about this on the podcast before about how the testing requirement was going to impact some of the more the the, the less the less mighty cigar manufacturers because it's uh, it's punitive. Well, they can't afford it. They can't afford to comply with the testing requirements because they don't sell the volume to stay in business. So essentially, by fiat, either by design or just by circumstance, they're going to drive these companies out of business. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really seem we've. Again, I've said I don't see that it really accomplishes much because in the grand scheme of things, you're doing more harm than good when you put these cigar manufacturers out of business. Well, and I, I, I've said it on the podcast before, I blame vaping. They wanted to put these regulations. That's how the Food and Drug Administration got involved was through vaping. And they said, wait, these vaping guys don't have any money, but cigar companies do, so let's lump it all together so that we can cash a check because it's a cash grab by the FDA. That's really all it is. And, you know, this week, the Texas premium cigar industry um, had a win in their lawsuit against the FDA. Were they challenging the regulation? They are. They're challenging the regulation and they're challenging the warning label regulations as well. That the warning labels that they're wanting them to put on like 70% of the boxes is, you know, absurd. Well, it's always good to know that lawyers are being fully employed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But a judge denied the FDA's attempt to move this case to Washington, D.C., filed by the Texas Cigar Association. Well, you know, that matters, too, because you might perceive as a cigar manufacturer 
that you're going to get a different makeup of the judges in Washington, D.C., who'd be more prone to protect the FDA's interests and not the manufacturer's. So that makes sense. Well, and in the same order, Judge Priest Johnson denied the FDA's motion to transfer premium cigar industry lawsuit to the United States District Court as well as to combine the ICPRs, ICPCRs, IPCPR, those, their lawsuit, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) their regulations, because they wanted to combine them under, I'm sorry, I'm trying to look as I'm talking. Your iPad's big enough. I don't see why you're struggling. That under similar, what what is it called in the law where it's two similar cases you can combine? I'm well, it has to do with the combiner. It has to do with the when the issues are the same, you can com- combine lawsuits for efficiency. That's oversimplifying it, but essentially that's what it amounts to. Because then you don't have a multiplicity of lawsuits. So you'd have one in California, one in Florida, one in Texas, one in New York. If the issues are the same, then you you can join the issues and every. It's not a class action case, but it's where the cases are combined. Then you don't have four different rulings. It also it also promotes uniformity. Whether it's whether you agree or disagree with the outcome, it's just more efficient. So you have people bond together and sometimes do this in lawsuits where it's challenging something, and they'll pick where they file the lawsuit because they might perceive that they're going to get a, a a more receptive audience. I would think in the cigar industry, it might be Florida, it might be it might be Texas. It, it, it might less be it might be less less friendly in Washington D.C. So where you file the lawsuit is very important. So if you were in charge of the cigar premium cigar industry's legal strategy to combat these FDA regulations, would you rather see everybody come together and it be one suit, or would you rather see Texas cigar have a suit and Florida cigar have a suit and Tennessee cigar have a suit? Which would be a more effective? Um, use of resources in your mind? Well, uniformity as a goal is not the end-all, be-all. So as a lawyer, I would also say that if you have a manufacturer in Texas, they shouldn't be forced to litigate in Washington, D.C. If you have a manufacturer in Florida, they should be able to have their lawsuit heard in a form that's convenient to them. So you shouldn't deprive the plaintiff, that's the person that files the lawsuit, of the opportunity to have the case heard in a form of their cho- of their choosing. There's all kinds of things that conflict when it comes to... The- People think that the law is really complicated. They're naive. It's more complicated than they can possibly imagine. If you were going to file a lawsuit that involved major issues, you're going to study your judges and see what their history says about their leanings. And if you have a choice between Texas, Florida, New York, and Washington, D.C., you're obviously going to pick a forum, Texas or Florida, that you think is going to be more favorable to you. The government's then going to try to drag you in a, in a, in a not a bad way, but they're going to try to drag you into the forum that they think is going to be on their side. So that kind of jockeying goes on. It has nothing to do with the merits of the case. And aren't in, in most cases, from what I understand, and this may be trying to oversimplify a, a very complicated situation, but... Or, Aren't there protections in most states that the plaintiff is the one that usually gets those protections of venue? Yeah, because you're the, you get to pick where you file your lawsuit. Yeah. And it's expensive to litigate. Trust me, I know that. So if you file a lawsuit in Washington, D.C., you're paying Washington lawsuit, Washington lawyers' rates, 
you have to travel, you have to bring your witnesses. If you have a cigar manufacturer in Ybor City, file it down the road in Tampa or Miami where the nearest federal court is. It's much more economical for you. And when we're talking about a mom and pop business, that matters. It matters a lot. So I have another question. Okay, I'm pulling the show over. I'm getting away from cigars because I have another legal question I need to ask you. We're going to owe Jay a retainer after this show. I was just going to remind you that this is being recorded, so attorney-client privilege is out the window. It's, it's out we- the window. Well, be careful. Oh well. Be careful when you say the words O and J. It always leads people <laughs> down a different path. <laughs> so one of the things that has happened is all of our cities have put these ordinances in about what time construction laborers can start work that they can't start work till after seven and they can't work on Saturdays and things like that. And here's my thought. If I'm a roofer this time of year in Tennessee, I have to start work at 5 a.m. in the morning. And by 9 a.m., it is too hot to be roofing a house. If one of my laborers died of a heat stroke because we couldn't start till seven and he was trying to earn enough money to um, keep his family afloat and these regulations were forcing him to work in unsafe conditions, would I have a lawsuit against the city? No. Why not? That's a complicated question, and I don't know how much time we have left. (laughs) I have put on a few shingles in my time. My brother was a roofer, and you make a good point. Um, When somebody tells you that you can only do something at a specific time or in a specific way, I can't tell you how many times that I've seen people laying brick and putting up roofs and on Saturdays and Sundays. They have deadlines, the weather. Um, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about talking about politics is people talk about Washington, 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 Washington. I don't know, I don't know who's going to listen to this, but I'm telling you, the listener, very little of what goes in Washington, D.C. affects you. But what your dog catcher, your local attorney, your local district attorney, your local city council does has a far greater impact on your life than you can possibly imagine. Local politics is extraordinarily important. So if you have an interest in it, vote. Because that's what matters. Who's on the Board of Education matters. It affects your schools. Who's on your city council affects your zoning laws, your real estate laws, the things that you're talking about, Shane. That's what that's what affects our daily life. Well, it's it's funny because they called one of my contractors and they said every time we catch you working before seven or working on a Saturday or Sunday, we're gonna send you we're gonna fine you a hundred dollars. And he took a thousand dollars to him and told him holler at him when it ran out. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've been around the legal business for you know, almost four decades. I don't know how you could pass a law that said that you can't do work on Saturday or Sunday. I mean, I don't know how it passes muster because there's a lot of reasons why you need to work on Saturday or Sunday. Well, you look at the spring when it, if it rains Monday through Thursday and it dries up Friday, Saturday, and it's going to rain again Monday, Saturday, Sunday's the only day you can get a yard done. You know, there's nothing but construction going on in this area. It's just everywhere. And one of the things that I'm sure is in every contract to build 
a skyscraper or to redo a patio, there's a deadline involved, whether it's real or implied. And if you deprive people of the opportunity to do work on Saturday or Sunday, you're really being very short-sighted. It is. And I'll tell everybody out there, if you happen to be the neighbor and they're building a house next to you, and this poor roofer happens to wake you up early on Saturday because he's out there trying to make a living and beat the heat, just give him a pass. It's temporary. They don't want to be there no longer than you want them there. You're act- I think it's counterproductive. You're well, actually making noise next to your house for longer by doing that. I'm actually going to go a step further and say, take them a pitcher of lemonade or something. Make, yeah. make friends with a construction crew right next to you because they can make your life hell if they want to. And I'll they can help you. Yeah. I'll, I'll speak as a, as a human being and not as an attorney, although they're not mutually exclusive. I'd rather them work on Saturday and Sunday and get done and move on. If, if, you're, exactly. annoyed, if you're annoyed by the work, finish it up. If you're going to say they can't work these hours and they can't work these days, you know, when they start that construction job in June, they're going to still be there in September. Yeah, it's just it's really important and all, but I was curious about that. So, well, that about wraps us up for this evening. Jay, thank you for being our guest again. Tell us about your book signing. Give us the date, the time. The book signing is going to be this Saturday from 11 o'clock to noon in Quincy, Illinois, which is where I grew up. It's going to be at the Potter and Vaughn gift shop in downtown Quincy. And I look forward to seeing a lot of my friends and uh, every relative I can find. And uh, we're just going to have a good time and uh, hopefully sell a couple books. And if you want to stay up to date on what's going on with the book, you can also find, you can search Glasby's Fortune on Facebook and like the page there to get updates on future signings and sales when the book goes on sale on Amazon Prime and things like that as well. Yeah, my book is available uh, to subscribers. You can read it for free. It's on Amazon as an ebook and as a print book. The ebook is a mere $2.99, about half the cup, half the cost of a cup of coffee like the coffee that Trey has there in front of him. <laughs> and you can buy the book book for $17.20. And I'll finish with this question. Why did I price the book at $17.20? Has something to do with the date 1720. Chapter 1, July 13th, 1720. That's why. There you go. Very good. You win. Well, Jay... You get a free cigar. Thank you for taking time to sit down and have a cigar Be careful about saying stuff like that to him. (laughs) I trust him. (laughs) Thanks for sitting down and taking the time to have a conversation with us over a cigar and... Until next week, we're still running our special giveaway. This will be their 70th episode, so we'll announce the winner on next week's show of the Ashtray. And while you're on Facebook looking up Glasby's Fortune, drop us a line. We're at facebook.com slash thecigarcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter as well, at thecigarcast. And I keep giving out the email address, info at thecigarcast.com, but no one's used it yet. So I'm just, I think we need to just stick to social media at this I think point. we're past the point in life when email gets used. I think so, too. If, Do you, if you ever it's get not any for emails business, at Glasby's? You know, I have gotten a couple, uh, but it's rare. It's rare. Yeah. So, thanks everyone for listening, and until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us.